32. So Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope is the Lord. O, is hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Your sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, and I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live humble lives, to trust you with everything, the good parts of life, the hard parts. We love you, and we ask your blessing on this day. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. After that prayer, I've got nothing to say. That's exactly... That is exactly the point. Well done. Oh, man. Is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel just not the greatest song? Oh, to have that hope that we all still feel the I need a Savior. God, will you rescue us? You know, we talk a lot about humility. I, I, humility seems to come up in sermons pretty regularly around here, and maybe that's because I struggle with it. I don't know. But I think really humility is the keystone Christian virtue. What other virtue is possible without humility? Does it not require humility to stay away from greed? If we are going to not be people who are greedy, we must say, I have all I want and mean it. Does it not take humility to say, just as I am right now, I have all I want and need. Does it not take humility to stay away from covetousness, from coveting? For in order to stay away from that sin, I must be able to say, they have more than me, and that's fine with me. Does it not take humility to stay away from the sin of gossip? Do we not have to say, I'm not going to show off? 
by saying negative things about other people. I'm not going to enter this conversation in a way that makes me look great by spilling somebody else's beans. Does it not take humility to stay away from the sin of lying? To say, even if it costs me, even if I don't come out on top here, I will be a person who tells the truth. What about the first commandment? To have no other gods besides Yahweh. To not give in to idolatry. This takes great humility. It means giving up our will, for goodness sake. The thing that you must do to be a Christian, and this is a common thing. Well, what do I have to do? Only one thing. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. Man, do you guys know that we just had an altar call? Do you know that Michael got up here and said, Jesus is calling out to you. Would you say yes to him? Would you put your hope in the cross and not in yourself? What humility it takes to say, I've gotten to the end of my will and I'm giving up on that. And I instead am going to seek and live by the will of God. Pride, I suppose, is the opposite of humility. It's pride that compels us to sin, isn't it? Self-centeredness is certainly the opposite of love. I cannot be submitting to you in love and serving you in love and also serving myself. Pride justifies bad behavior. It is pride that gives me a free pass when I do things I know are against what God wants for me. It is pride that makes us jealous. How could they have stuff that I want? I'm sure I am the one that the whole universe is revolving around. It is pride that convinces us that truth or morality are relative to the way we feel. Pride was the first weakness that the enemy used to prey upon humans in the garden. Did God really say, aren't you the ones who should make decisions for yourself? Pride causes fights. Pride causes affairs. Pride causes fraud and anger. Pride ruins everything. And sometimes, probably because of our pride, we feel like it is weakness to say things like Psalm 131. My eyes are not lifted up. I'm not worrying my head about stuff that I shouldn't be. That feels like weakness. It feels like neglect. It feels like giving up. When actually, all that has been given up is pride. Let's take a look at Psalm 131 and let's see the humility in it. But let's not only see the humility, let's see the faith the trust in God it, sa- it takes to say this kind of thing. In uh, you know, half hour or so, I will simply say, I would challenge you this week to say the words of 131 and mean them. To have an attitude in line with the psalmist in Psalm 131. We're going to look at 131 and 132, and I'll tell you why when we get there, but I don't know if if, if, if I just am so enjoying the songs of a sense that I'm seeing connections with everyone, but I think you get to the end of 131 and there's a, yeah, but 
Why would I be that kind of humble? And so you need Psalm 132 to explain it to you. But let's start in Psalm 131. Charles Spurgeon, he could preach. He said, this of 131, he said, this is the shortest of the Psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It starts simply with, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You know, in the Songs of Ascents, this is the second time we've read about our eyes. Do you remember in Psalm 121, as we were just getting going in the Songs of Ascents, as we're imagining this pilgrim and his family going from uh, somewhere maybe several days away from Jerusalem on a, on a walk to the feast to get to Jerusalem, to the presence of God. And this is the second time in this little subsection of the Psalms that we've heard about our eyes. You remember in Psalm 121, very famously, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? We talked about the imagery that worked um, in, in Psalm 121, that the hills are full of danger, that the hills are not only full of danger, but, you know, robbers and people that might, might you know, get you, but also the hills are full of adventure. And as we start out on this journey, we look to the hills and go, oh man, where is my help going to come from? And the psalmist says, well, my help comes from the Lord. The psalmist found his safety, his hope, his security in the Lord. So now as the, you know, the album, the collection of songs that is the Songs of Ascent has continued on, um, after much of the journey, after trusting the Lord in the hills, the psalmist now says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. It's like he says, I have stopped worrying about the things that I used to worry about. I've stopped worrying about the things in life that are God's to take care of. At the start of the journey, this is kind of like the model, the, the kind of normative arc for the life of a believer, I think, is at the beginning, we go, oh my gosh, the world is evil and there's danger everywhere and it's all bad. And as soon as I figure out that I'm a sinner, I see that everybody else is and I want to just like solve it all. And you go, oh man, where is my help going to come from? But then years and years of trusting the Lord, it's not that you neglect the sin in the world. It's not that you neglect you know, let's solve human trafficking. Let's do it. We don't ignore things. And, but still, you get to a point in Christian maturity where you go, I no longer want to do God's job. I'm going to let God do his job. I'm going to respond in worship. It's no longer that I want to change the world because God needs me. But rather, I let God be my provider. I entrust the world to the Lord. And then I go joyfully, God, what would you have me do? The result of a mature Christian is we, spot, we stop spending that much time looking at the scary world. And it's not neglect, but it's trust. There comes a time where Christ occupies so much of our field of vision that we see the whole world not as, oh my gosh, the hills are terrifying, but rather we see the world as mission field and the beauty of every day and opportunity to worship. 
And we end up saying things like, I, I don't occupy myself. I'm not worrying my pretty little head over stuff that's God's job. How will I be okay? Where's my provision coming from? God's got me. Well, it, it, is the world falling apart? Maybe, but I've read the end of the book. We're going to be okay. God's faithful to his people. He's been faithful to me. He'll remain faithful. What a picture verse 2 sends. But I have, um, verse 2 says, but I have uh, calmed and quieted my soul, which I guess means that at some point the psalmist did not have a calmed and quieted soul, and this was spiritual discipline. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Have you a uncalm and unquieted soul? Do you have a soul that is full of the trepidation of the world, of fear, of anger, of frustration? Do you have a soul that needs to calm down? Well, the psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Isn't that interesting? Like a weaned child. Maybe you can imagine a toddler, they didn't, you know, they didn't uh, wean children as early as we typically do. So, you know, maybe two, three, even four years old, you know, there's no refrigerators and formula and stuff. So a weaned child is definitely old enough to know that there is safety with mom. And so um, a, a toddler, you imagine a toddler just absolute trust at peace by its mother. Why is that child at peace in that place? Is it because the child understands the future? No. If you would take a child, a toddler, and be like, hey, there's going to be six stock market crashes in your lifetime. You're going to have to live through maybe two major wars. You know what else? Your house might burn at some point. You know what else? People you love are going to die. No, the child doesn't have any concept of that at all. The child just knows there's safety here with mom. The psalmist says, that's the way I am with God. The future is uncertain. I don't know. I can't tell you how things are going to go. But I can tell you, as I sit with God, I'm calm. I feel safe. I'm at peace. Maybe this is why Jesus said we should seek first the kingdom of God and let him worry about adding provision to our lives. Maybe this is why Jesus said that it is those that are like a child that will enter the kingdom. The child hasn't accomplished anything. None of these kids that were on stage here uh, a minute ago who were excited to come up, but they're excited to go back to mom and dad. It is not that they have earned anything. They haven't added anything to the world except joy and laughter. They haven't, they haven't cured anything or solved anything. No, rather, they just know they're loved, and that is enough. This is the shortest to read. It is the longest to learn. You are going to be okay like a weaned child sitting by mom, not because the future is certain, not because there's no difficulty, not because the world is solving itself, but rather, just like a toddler by mom, you can learn to trust God. Verse 3 um, is just the absolute, you know, uh, automatic advice that comes from this. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What else could there be? The psalmist, by way of testimony, says, I have stopped worrying about things that are God's business. Me being on mission, that's my job. Me being obedient to the will of God, that's my job. Working out the details of the world, that's God's job. Making sure I'm okay, that's God's job. I no longer am worried about things that are God's job. And so because of that, by way of testimony, the psalmist says, Israel, live like me. Just learn to trust God like a child. Stop arguing. Stop stressing out. And trust God. So there it is, humility. Not making life happen with pride in our hearts, but rather simply saying, I trust God with my care and I'm going to focus on being an obedient son. And I'm going to leave the rest to Him. Humility. What a perfect place for 132 to come. Because I'm not all the way there yet. Are you? No matter what happens, no matter what email you get, no matter what the news says, no matter what phone call you get, do you go, like a weaned child, my heart is calm. I have peace. No, we're still in process. We're maturing. We're working towards that. And so in my you know, flesh, in myself, I hear Psalm 31 and I go, yeah, but that's a little... I mean extreme. I mean, because I'll tell you another thing. Toddlers, don't tell them I said so, kind of useless. <laughs> Sitting there by its mom, just thinking the world's okay. What a dummy. How could I get there? Would it even be wise for me to get there? On what grounds could I get there? The toddler doesn't know the horrors of the world. I grew up and learned how bad the world is and sad things have happened. On what grounds could I have that kind of humility? Could I have that kind of trust? Give me a reason. There's, give me some reason why. Tell me something that makes me think that this is not all my responsibility. Because when I see a stack of responsibilities and a stack of financial responsibilities and a, a schedule that's out of control, I look at it and I go, I got to do all this stuff. It seems like the world's on my shoulders. So sitting like a toddler with his mom? That seems kind of far away sometimes. Give me some reason why that's not just pie-in-the-sky poetry and why practically I can actually do that. Trust the Lord. Be humble. Mind my own business. Don't worry. You know, when somebody's freaking out, saying, calm down or don't worry, pretty dumb. Have you tried it? Did it work? No. no, it has to be something else. It can't just be, why don't you calm down? It has to be, give me a reason to be at peace. Give me a reason I'm going to be okay. And then Psalm 132 comes. And Psalm 132 is going to say, it's going to tell a story but basically, Psalm 132 comes in to go, let me give you two things. First of all, remember what God has done. And second of all, remember what God has promised. See, I don't think we should calm down because it's good for your 
blood pressure, or I don't think we should be at peace because we should ignore the world. Rather, I think there's got to be a toughness, a, a, a maturity in Christians that goes, no, I see the trouble in the world. I see the things that are scary. I still see the hills out there, but I see clearly what God has done, and I see clearly what God has promised, and they are more. They are, more, they are stronger. They are more persuasive than the news that's trying to freak me out. We don't live humble lives in a vacuum. It's not without good reason. No, rather, we don't say things like, I don't lift my eyes too high. My heart is not lifted up on their own merit. But rather, we say them because of God's faithfulness in the past and because of His faithfulness in the future. Psalm 132 is largely a retelling of the covenant God made with David, the Davidic covenant. And then also the story of how the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Jerusalem. And I want you to remember as we retell this story, we're just going to walk through this psalm real quick, and, and I want you to remember that when we use big theological sounding words like covenant, and when we talk about things that like, remember Raiders of the Lost Ark and the, the, you open up the, the ark and everybody's face melts because of the power of God. Look, the power of God was not the point of the ark of the covenant. The presence of God was the point of the ark of the covenant. So when we talk about the ark of the covenant and when we talk about the Davidic covenant, what we're talking about, we're using relational words. We're talking about God and his people being together in such a way that the people trust God like a weaned child. It's the story of God's continued promise of relationship with David and his descendants. And the ark is all about the presence of God. Why can we live simple, humble lives why do we not have to live judgmental lives? Why are we not to live controlling lives? Why are we not to live prideful lives? Guys, this is the only reason I have for you that you should calm down. The only reason that you should not lift your eyes too high. The only reason to have a calm heart. Are you ready? I've got nothing else. If this doesn't work for you, I've got zero. I don't know what's going to happen. There might be terrible wars. We might have to fight in them. There might be tragedy in your family. I don't know what's coming. But I know that God has been with us. That God is with us. And that God will be with us. And if you were a toddler and I was talking about your mom, that'd be enough. Because you trust her. It's the presence of God that is the point of Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. I love it when the psalmist like try to convince God to love his people. Like God's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the one that made the promise. But when the covenant feels a little broken, when you were disobedient to your mom, you would go and say, Mom, will you please still love me? Mom's like, yeah, no, that wasn't the problem. You were the problem. It wasn't me. Remember, O oh Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. 
how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You know, songs are some of the most powerful tools to teach and to remember important events in our history. And that's all this is. This is, you know, the history of the Jews. And so it's appropriate to sing a song about the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem. The presence of God coming to the capital, to Jerusalem. And especially as the songs of ascent go and we are with our families traveling towards Jerusalem, wouldn't it be great to sing a song about how the presence of God got, we're going to go be in the presence of God in Jerusalem. Let's sing a song about how the ark, how the presence of God got there. And at least part of that story is the story of David, the man after God's own heart, a sinful man for sure, a far less than perfect man, but a repentant man, and a man who had a heart to place God right in the center of his people, not just to build a palace for himself, but he had a heart to build a temple, a permanent home for God, no longer a temporary tent like they had wandering around, but as they settle in the capital of Jerusalem, David has a heart for building God a permanent home. Again, not because they won capture the flag and they have the Ark of the Covenant, but because it is a profound statement when the king says, don't put the palace in the middle, put the temple in the middle. We want this whole thing not to wheel off of me and my power. We want this whole thing to wheel off of the presence of God. And so the psalm is like, hey, God, remember, and everybody, hey, do you remember David had this heart? He said, I'm not going to sleep until my eyelids aren't going to hit the pillow until I build a temple. And you remember that he was the one that laid the plans for the temple It was his son that built the temple, but that David gathered all the supplies and at least two different times looked at his son Solomon and goes, look, build the temple. This is the point. This is how we lead in our family. We put the presence of God in the middle of things. Verse 6 says, Behold, we heard of it in Phathra. We found it in the fields of Jar." Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. The word footstool is code for the Ark of the Covenant. That was the thought. Do you remember Isaiah's vision? God in the temple, in the temple, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. That was the the idea, was that the earth was God's footstool, the heavens were his, and the place where he rested his feet was the Holy of Holies, was the ark. So, behold, we heard of it. We found it. Let us go to the dwelling place and worship at his footstool. You know, quite frankly, this is what poets and songwriters do, but this is definitely a broad summary of the journey that the ark took to get to Jerusalem. You'll remember in the times of Saul and of David, the Philistines actually captured the ark for a time. And do you remember that story? God gave boils to all of the Philistines, and the Philistines were like, this ark's too much for us. It's almost like you have to worship the God that 
this ark belongs to. Well, we don't want to do that. So they sent it back. And it got stuck in a field for a while. And it got stuck in a guy's barn for a few months. Like, this is in your Bible, these stories. Actually, we preached through this a couple years ago. It took quite a journey because although David had a heart for this, David was also a flawed man. But it's true. They found it. They brought it eventually to the temple. And verse 8 is a picture of the good times. Arise, O Lord, to your, and go to your resting place. Oh, the joy of saying, oh God, we made a permanent home for you. God, please, we made this for you. It's like a king who's been away and we've been like building his palace and we're so excited to show it to him. And so we go, God, please go. And can I just tell you that's your heart? This side of the curtain being torn at the crucifixion, this side of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit resides in us, it is our hearts. It is our fellowship. I mean, if somebody in this room has said something mean or dumb to you, you know why you should forgive them? Because we are the house of God. Our attitude should be like this psalmist who said, oh God, we're so excited for you to see the place. Go. Arise, go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Oh, this is joyous. Let your priests be clothed in righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away your face from your anointed one. Oh. Okay, we need to talk about that. That's a cool thing to say. Because anointed one has a lot of covenant like weight to it. Especially, let's imagine that we're reading this psalm sometime before the time of Jesus. Let's say 100 BC. You know what, better yet, let's say we are on a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. We're faithful Jewish people, and the year is something like 25 BC. King Herod has been in power for a few years. Rome is charging us a whole bunch of taxes. The whole thing seems like a mess. Was there a priesthood that was clothed in righteousness? No. There was a priesthood that had become so corrupt they were in Rome's pocket. Let your saints shout for joy? No. That's not what's going on. It was a time of great oppression for God's people. But then there is this wonderful mystery in verse 10. For the sake of David, for the sake of David. Remember the promise you made? Okay, so the covenant of David in, in brief is God telling David, I'm going to make sure that somebody eternally sits on your throne. One of your descendants will eternally sit on the throne of God's people. Is Herod a descendant of David? No. What happened to this? Did the Davidic covenant fail? Is there no descendant of David to... Should we stop singing this song? Well, no. Because verse 10 continues, For the sake of your servant David, for the promise you made to David, do not turn your face away from your anointed one. The word anointed one is the word Messiah. 
And you know, before you quickly, I think we have to be thinking that that's Jesus because we're Christians and we're in New Testament times. But you don't, you got to get there. You got to take the long way around to get there because there were lots of messiahs in the Old Testament. There were lots of anointed ones. In fact, there was a time when both Saul and David were messiahs. Saul was the acting king who had been anointed as the king. David had already been anointed as the next king, but Saul is still in charge. So anointed means somebody, a priest, prophet, poured oil on your head and said, God has set you apart for, for leadership, for authority, for a certain purpose. That's what anointed means. And yet as time had gone on and as things had gotten darker, and I know the song wasn't written back then, but as Israel sang things like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we have this hope of the prophets. We really want something to happen. The covenant seems so broken, but God, for the sake of your servant David, because of those promises you made hundreds and hundreds of years ago, would you please bring yourself to us? Would you please somehow make good on your promise even though we have failed? As time went on, the prophets began to write like all of these other messiahs, all of these other anointed ones were really pointing ahead to one messiah. That the covenants had not failed, but that the people had failed in the covenants, but that God would still be faithful. Why can you live a humble life? Because God, even if you have dropped the ball in your relationship with God, He is still faithful because God was with us, because God is with us, because God's going to be with us. So there were these prophets that looked around and went, even though the whole thing seems like a mess, God is going to bring one who will not be an anointed one, but will be the anointed one and God for the sake of the promises you made all the way back in David would you not turn your face from this future Messiah there was no denying that Israel had not been faithful and yet there was hope and understanding that God still would be faithful you can live a humble life at peace because of what God has done and because of what God has promised I'm sure at times this seemed ridiculous. Why would God keep His promise? Israel had been so wrong for so long, and, let, and yet the psalmist sings, the Lord made a promise and He will not turn His back. See, we can be humble. We can let God worry about the hills, about the culture, about our provision, about our well-being, not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's. God was faithful to David in a way more wonderful way than anyone could have expected by sending Jesus to be the anointed one. It's funny when you read the story of David and his lineage, I mean, that covenant looks broken very quickly. You know, Solomon is David's son and he does sit on the throne of David but right after that, the kingdom splits in two and you have a king in the north and a king in the south and, and there's unfaithfulness running rampant and just a couple generations later, you have kings that only have loose affiliation to the line of David. 
And by the time of Jesus, well, there's no king with any lineage to the line of David. So when God brings Jesus to Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into the temple, as Jesus is crucified as the Lamb that would be a once and for all solution to the sins of mankind, all of the covenant breaking that the people have ever done, solved by the blood of the one true Lamb who is in the line of David, who is the anointed one, who has had the voice of God come down at least twice and said, this is my son, who says he came to inaugurate a new kingdom, the kingdom of God that he sits on the throne now and evermore, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to David in the person of Jesus Christ. So are you still worried about the future? Or can you say, in light of that, <coughs> in light of all that God has accomplished, I can sit like I'm sitting beside my mom, kicking my legs on the park bench, knowing everything's going to be fine. Psalm 13, I'm sorry, Psalm 132, 13, and it wraps up like this. For the Lord has chosen, uh, where are we? Here we go. Um, For the Lord has chosen Zion, He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It was my choosing, not yours. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. Oh, that's important. It's not that Jerusalem... The place is forever going to be the capital of God's people. No, rather, it is that Jerusalem is the place that God is going to make a horn of David sprout. And we've talked about this before in Old Testament stuff, especially in the Psalms. Horn, you can kind of think like crown. It's like the power of authority, the power of leadership. And God says, look, Israel, you did nothing to help me as I made promises to you and you made promises to me. This is not because you've been so great or faithful, but right in the middle of where you have been completely faithless, I am going to bring the Messiah, the King, the one who will sit on the throne of David. Praise the Lord. I have prepared a lamp. A lamp is always a symbol of God's presence. There were lamps in the temple. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. I will be with him. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now we have gone not just from ancient Israel. Now we have gone not just from the life of Christ, but now we have an eschatological piece to this psalm. We are looking to the future. And we are seeing, guys, not only has God been faithful, not only is God faithful, but I promise in light of that you can trust that the enemies of Christ will find shame. You don't have to make them find the shame. 
they'll figure it out on their own. God is the judge, not you. Leave it in his hands. Don't lift your eyes too high. Don't put your heart too high. Don't worry about stuff that's not your business. But we will find the enemies of Christ in shame and Christ's crown just shining. In times like ours, it's easy to kind of go, the power of the church isn't what it used to be in America. That's not true. Jesus is losing. Is that what you think? There's less power in Christ? If maybe some false Christians are no longer acting like Christians, that's okay. Wheat and tares grow up. We'll let somebody else figure that out. It's another thing. That's not my business. But guys, the power of God, the power of Christ, sadly, let me tell you the truth, our rebellion shines, glory, shines the glory of God just as much as our faithfulness. Because it's either shame or glory. You know why you can be okay? Presence of God. Sounds too simple. I'm sorry. I wish I had more. I wish I had something more complicated, but Spurgeon said it better than I did. This is easy to hear, easy to understand. It'll take your whole life to live it out. God fulfilled the covenant promises in Christ. So far, so good. God brought a Messiah to Israel and the world in Christ. Christ came announcing good news to the poor. Christ came announcing the kingdom of God for us today. Christ is the authority, the power, the horn of David. Christ in the lamp, the presence of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. If we can't sit on the park bench and kick our legs in peace, what more would God have to do? Christ's enemies will on judgment day be brought low and the power and the majesty of Christ will shine eternally. Why can I walk humbly? Why can I not give in to pride and a haughty heart? Why can I not give in to sin and self-satisfaction? How can I be about the business of obedience and trusting God with my well-being? Because of what God has done in Christ. Because of what He has promised in Christ. And because of what Christ has done in me. So, my challenge for you would be to read Psalm 131 and mean it. If you're struggling with a unstill, I almost said distilled heart. It's not that it turned into gin or something. That's not. <laughs> if you're studying with a heart that's stirred, that's not at peace. If you've got things that you have been not trusting the Lord with your care. If you've got things where Look, if you've been haughty, if you've been proud, man, you just held the symbol of the body and blood of Jesus in your hands. 
You've sung, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We've sat at the foot of the psalmist as he said, I've stopped worrying about stuff that's not mine to worry about. Would you, with courage, because of the power of God in your life now, because of the power of God in history, and because of the power of God in the future, would you today repent of your self? Self. And would you give your life to Christ? And if you've never done that before, would you become a Christian today? Would you say, God, I'm repenting of myself and I'm going to live for you. And God, whatever comes next, I'm going to just trust you with all of it. And if you've been a Christian a long time, Christians, you and I both know what it's like to fully trust God in theory, but then in the details get pretty caught up in ourselves. And if you need to give him some things and say, God, I've been worrying about things that are not my business. I've been worrying about my own provision. I've been worrying about my own well-being. I've been worried about the future. These are your things, and I've been worrying about them. Would you give them to him now? My deep hope and prayer for you is that you would have the peace and the confidence of a toddler sitting by their mom. Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us these words in the Psalms, Lord. For Lord, I always pray, God, that you would speak to your people. And I pray, Lord, that you not only have in this service, but that as we go out from here, Lord, that if there's things that have pricked in our heart, in our conscience, that we need to not give up on this passage, but reread it during the week and, and, and be challenged by it, God, to be thinking about how faithful you have been, that the presence of God is in our lives, not because of us, but because of you, that that would grow humility in us, that it would grow confidence in us. Lord, that we would learn to trust you. And God, if there's things in our congregation, things that people are carrying that just need to be given to you today, I pray for fresh you know, confession and repentance today. God, if there's pride, we pray against it. If there's temptation and sin, we pray against it. Lord, if there's just a, a lack of trust in you, Lord, we pray that you would take that from us and we would walk faithfully with you. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And amen. Hey, have a great week.